to Roses Radio, Voices Saving Lives. This podcast is presented by Roses in the Ocean, an Australian-based national not-for-profit that's been founded in order to change the way suicide is spoken about, understood and prevented. We hope that by presenting lived experience stories along with the insights and wisdom of the courageous people who share them, we will help to dispel some of the myths about suicide improving the suicide literacy of our communities and contributing to reducing the fear, discrimination and judgement that sadly still inhibits our ability to support others and seek help. At Roses in the Ocean we believe that most suicides are preventable and we need to be able to openly speak about suicide. So please, open your hearts and minds to the possibilities that a deeper understanding of suicide can bring to saving lives. Hello folks, welcome to Roses Radio, Voices Saving Lives. I'm Lane Stratton, happy to bring you this podcast wherever you are. Today we talk to Tynan. Tynan is a young guy who lives in North Queensland here in Australia and on the 17th of October 2002, at the tender age of 19, his life changed forever. Since then, he's gone on to do some pretty amazing things as you're about to experience. He's just recently the father of a new baby boy. He has an amazing partner. He's overcome incredible adversity in his life to do some pretty inspirational events. He has some clear messages also about how we should be dealing with suicide and what we can do in its prevention. Just do yourself a favor and take a moment to sit back and have a listen to a special life that's being lived by a pretty inspiring bloke. Well, welcome to Melbourne, Tynan. Good to have you here. Thanks, mate. Good to be here. Yeah, good to uh, to finally have you on Roses Radio. Um, how are you coping with the, the Melbourne heat that we've dished up for you today? It's beautiful, actually. I was just out in it, and yeah, I was happy to stay out in it, but a few of the local people didn't really handle it too well. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> we don't like these heat waves here in Melbourne. Hey, um, you've just had a newborn. Congratulations on that. Thank you. What does that feel like to be a father? It's a pretty amazing experience and I guess in the context of this conversation it's something that I 
honestly for a while thought would never happen and something that I'm glad events that have happened in my life has led to this position where I actually am a dad because being a dad, I always hear people say that it's the coolest thing and the best thing that's going to happen to you. And I mean, I've done some cool things in my life and had some awesome events and I'd always thought, yeah, you know, it might be really good, but now I can just understand that and I just look at him and I just see this little life that's so dependent on, well, mainly my wife at the moment, but us and that we've just got so much stuff that we can give to him and provide this great life for him. And yeah, there's so many things that I've just got ideas about that I've just got to wait and be patient. So yeah, good thing I've learned about patience. Terrific. And you know, the reason you talk about um, the fact that this is a a blessing for you and, and something that maybe uh, might not have happened is because let's go back in time. You had an accident at work, um, a very debilitating accident at work, and that was probably your first experience of being um, hurt badly and potentially near death. What, what was that all about? Well, the accident happened on the 17th of October, 2002. At the time, I was working as a painting apprentice and... Everything I say about before that, it's kind of subjective simply because my memory of that is either non-existent or I've built it upon other people's stories that I've heard over and over again about the life beforehand. So what you're saying is that your memory prior to the accident is very blurred in terms of your own recollections and really it's been what people have indicated to you happened prior to that that's, that your memory's based on. Mm. Yeah, well, to put it bluntly, I don't have a memory of before that. Wow. At okay. all, really. Yeah. Well, at all. And yeah, so based on the story that I've sort of been pieced out through the investigations through that time, I arrived at a job site in south of Brisbane at, I don't know, early in the morning. I was taken to the third level of a building complex and instructed to clean plaster joints with a broom. Some minutes later, there was a loud thud that the host employees had heard and then they heard some weird moaning noises which was actually me because I'd just fallen 5.4 metres down an empty stairwell under concrete. The guys then began to investigate what these noises were that they heard and at this stage they wrote that I was actually standing and moving around and again they thought that I looked like I'd died basically and they then tried to... I don't know, assist me of some sort, I think it read in the report, and apparently I tried to fight them and push them away. And eventually I made my way to the garage where I then collapsed on the ground and, yeah, was basically there, dead almost. So you were walking, you fell five, uh, three floors, yeah. five odd metres, and you walked to the sheds? Apparently, which is quite weird because I'd broken my hip, I'd basically broken the entire right side of my body, I think in... I don't remember how many bones in total, but yeah, I broke my hip, I broke both my wrists, I'd cracked ribs, I'd punctured a lung, I'd cracked my head, had a brain hemorrhage, I'd bruised my thoracic spine and a few other little minor bruises and things along there as well. So yeah, it's quite quite weird to hear that I actually was able to walk, but they say that that's just when you're in shock and you don't really know what's happening. But the first miracle of the day is that there was actually a nurse who lived 
I think it was across the road, an emergency ward nurse, and she'd actually just arrived home from work. And in the report, it read that she sensed something was going on. And she came across and saw the two host employees just freaking out. And then she looked at me and basically said to them, call an ambulance. And she basically, as it wrote, saved my life and kept me alive until the ambulance and paramedics arrived. And then I was taken off to, I'm not sure, I think it was Brisbane, the big hospital near the RNA. Mm -hmm. And I was in a coma for three days and... Initially, once the police got hold of my mum and stuff, they basically rang up and said, come in, your son's going to die. And that was quite obviously quite a hard thing for my family to hear. And then they relayed the message to like my close friends and they all sort of came in and stayed around there for, I don't know, maybe 12 hours or something like that. I think at yeah, day three, the recollection of the story, I remember a guy told me that he was sitting in the room while I was in the coma and this big nurse stuck a needle up under my fingernail, right up into my finger, and didn't even flinch. But yeah, it was sometime after that that I came out of the coma and I guess started the rehabilitation process. Actually, not really. I, I came out and I also remember that they asked me who I was and I don't know what name I gave, but I said I was someone and that I actually was from Sydney and that... To me, still, I have no context around where that would have come from. <laughs> and, yeah, that was quite weird. But, yeah, so I remember some of my first recollections of hospital. I remember there was a guy that used to come around in the mornings. And he'd come around and he'd basically test my mind. And it was basically so I could get out of the emergency ward part into, like, the normal wards of the hospital. So how long were you in the emergency ward for? I think I was there for maybe a week right. or maybe two. Yep. I remember I was all up, I was in hospital a month, but I'll sort of try and piece it out. But I remember this guy came around and he kept asking me these questions, which every day he'd come, I thought it was the first time I'd seen this guy. And I remember one day eventually I clicked and I he asked me a question and I still thought he was the first time I'd seen him. But I said, I think I, I don't remember what the answer was, but I remember I say, I think this is what it was. And he said to me, he said, you've just learned a memory. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) And it was really bizarre. So after sort of I left this ward, I ended up over in a brain injury ward for a month. And that's kind of where my first memories came because that place was scary as hell. There were people walking around that were like zombies, people who had car crashes, people who had just had horrific things happen to them. And they were just like zombies. And I can remember walking in there and, looking at this nurse who seemed like a really kind lady and I can remember just looking at a badge and trying to remember who she was because all I knew is that I didn't want to be there and I thought I had to try and figure stuff out before I could leave and yeah, it's kind of hard to think back there. I wrote a kind of like a short story about it over a few months but I'm just trying to remember parts from that. But yeah, it was kind of weird. I remember being in there and they were sending me to things where they said, look, you need to learn how to speak and stuff. And I'm going, but I can speak. But I couldn't, I couldn't link words together and have conversations because stuff just wouldn't flow. Yeah. So I might, if I was sitting here having a conversation with you, I might not be able to use the linking words that make it make sense. Sure. 
And then there were people that were saying, well, you've got to learn to walk again and do this stuff. And I'm thinking, well, I know how to walk, but I didn't, like I didn't know how to walk properly because my hips and stuff were broken and I guess those neuron patterns weren't firing very well. And yeah, so it was probably the longest month of my life, I'd say, being in there. I can remember clearly just before I got out that I came to my bed and this guy had been in my bed and he'd basically just gone to the toilet all through my bed. And I remember opening it and I'm just like, this is horrible, I've got to get out of here. Yeah. And yeah, I was fortunate to be able to get out of there because my mum was a nurse, so she basically said she'd be able to look after me a bit better. And then I think I had sort of day trips back in there maybe every couple of days. But that was the that was the hospital side of things. How frustrating was it for you at a mental level not to be able to either remember or to do the things that you used to be able to do or the things that we, I guess we just take for granted? It's kind of frustrating from the perspective that I didn't actually acknowledge that I needed to learn them. And somewhere in my mind, like I still thought I was okay, like I thought I'd be all right. Little did I know that I'd be on work cover for three and a half years and go through a whole rigmarole. But I guess once I once I got home and sort of tried to get into some normal life, and by normal I think I was sleeping on average from probably sixteen to twenty hours a day because of the brain damage and my brain trying to repair itself. And in between that, I remember that I was at doctors like appointments every day. So there'd be my normal GP, there'd be psychiatrists, psychologists occupational therapists, physiotherapists, different different specialists for just everything. Like I had to get all my nerves and stuff conducted because stuff wasn't firing through there. It was maybe about three months in that we actually realised that I didn't have feeling on the right side of my face. I got this pair of sunglasses that I put on and I remember they were quite sharp on the left side of my face and then I started touching the right side and I'm going, I don't feel anything. So yeah, I, after I just started seeing all these doctors and things like that, I tried to get into some normality of life and yeah, I, I had a couple of friends that were really cool that came around and obviously my brother and my mum were cool, but I had one mate that would come by and I don't really remember him being there all that much, but I know that he was and he'd sit there sometimes, some days for like eight hours and I wouldn't even say a word to him <laughs> and I'd walk off and go to sleep and I'd come back and he'd still be sitting there and be and he just said he just wanted to be a mate and just hang out. That's amazing. Yeah. 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 That's amazing. The impact that it had on your family must have been, you know, profound. Um what was their reactions to the whole situation? I know that my mum probably struggled with it a lot and my brother, I'm pretty sure that he would have too, but I don't know, he's not the sort of bloke that'll let on that he's had anything wrong. Like, I know through conversations with other people that they've sort of said, yeah, like, it was really tough on them. And I guess as as it wore on, as the recovery phase continued on, that it would have become a lot tougher with them when I started to sort of, I guess, get depressed and get down because of all the doctor's appointments and things like that. And just the whole conversation that I'd get back and the feedback from doctors was just so negative and just so so doomed basically I'd so give us an example of what that looks like well the the feedback was always that I'm not going to be able to sort of live a normal life Mm. I remember having an IQ test where I thought I did quite well 
and it turned out that I basically had the equivalent of like a fifth grade child and that was kind of weird for me to take and I guess because I still had was still my brain was still repairing I didn't think that it really bothered me but I know that it did and it's kind of like you you drip feed something in eventually it sort of builds up and yeah I'd sort of see doctors and they'd just be saying that it's sort of very unlikely that I'd be able to return to work and maybe I could get a job just doing something like sweeping floors and eventually when I had this big assessment done and they deemed me as having 57% permanent impairment and the outcome on that was based that I'd never be able to live by myself, I'd never be able to basically get an education and teach myself to do anything, I wouldn't be able to surf and when I say I wouldn't be able to surf, people would always tell me that I love to surf and I'd have in my mind to be, I must really like to surf because my mates all did and I'd always say to this lady at work, I'd say, I just want to be able to get in the surf because I think I like it. And I remember going one day to the beach and I got to sort of push my head under a wave and get out the back and it was the coolest thing ever. Yeah. But And I remember going home and I called the lady from work cover and said, hey, I've just been, been in the water. And so I'd sort of have, I'd have little moments where I'd sort of feel good, but on the overall, it was just... Just that pressure being, I think at that stage I would have been 20. And yeah, I was 19 when the accident happened. I think it would have been maybe 12, 18 months later. I was just sort of feeling all this pressure and the whole picture that was being painted was something that I didn't really like. Well, I, I actually hated it. I would always think about it and yeah, it was just a really, really crappy time you could sense yourself slipping into a much more negative space as a result of that? Yeah, yeah, I definitely could. I I didn't really have any joy in anything. Like, sure, I'd do stuff and I'd see people and you might smile and stuff like that, but when I was by myself, I just, I just hated myself and I basically lived with this mentality that I was certain I was meant to die and that just kept playing over over in my head I was like no I should not have lived like this should not have happened to me and yeah I guess that's when that thought started slipping in my head and sort of went down that road. Did you have um, suicide ideation for a long period of time like that is you know the 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 thought process of suicide was there for a while? Yeah yeah I did and the did way anyone know about that or, or did you keep that to yourself? I kept it to myself. Right. Like people knew that I wasn't happy but that whole thing, like I, don't, I didn't tell anyone and it's hard to say how long it was because time's weird when your brain's healing but it would have been over a period of months I'd say where I was just sort of sitting there and just planning it out basically and yeah. Okay. Would you reach out now? I, I guess it's you know it's hard to compare the two environments, isn't it? Because mm. now you're a normal functioning human being, whereas before there was an impairment mm. um, at a mental level. So clearly there was something there that was stimulating what it was that was going on for you. What would you say to people who you know are maybe um, having thoughts of suicide um, and and they're not reaching out just as you weren't? Well, I'll tell you what I wouldn't say, and that's what I did hear people say to me, is that you're okay and there's worse people off than you and stuff like that. 
Wow. And that, okay. that to me, it's just not the right thing to say to anyone because that sort of added added extra on top of what I was already feeling because... Well, now you felt guilty. Exactly. So you're feeling down, but then all of a sudden, oh, I'm a crap, crapper person because there's worse off people to me and I don't find any joy in that. Yeah. I guess what I'd say to people is, look, if you can reach out and by reach out, I mean, it's, it's so hard to talk to those people who are close to you. And that's probably the hard thing. Like I find your friends and your family, you're not going to have that conversation with. Well, I definitely wouldn't off. And I mean, just try and find someone like there's so many times since then that I've had conversations with just strangers and they'll spill their heart to me. And that can be even it. Like even if you just some random person just confide in and just speak what you're thinking, doesn't matter what they say back, at least you've said it. And then you may, you may feel better from that because you've spoken mm. about it and it might make sense that it's not the right idea to go for. So you're a lot more forward in asking those sorts of questions these days, aren't you, as a result of your experience? I mean, Absolutely. you're very sensitive to what it is that's happening around you. You're very sensitive to the emotions of people, even random strangers. You have stories of where you've literally just gone up to someone and said, hey, listen, you know, what's going on? I think there was one outside a shopping centre or something, wasn't there? There was. There was one at a bottle shop once. A where bottle shop, that's right. I just walked in there and I was asking about a cider and... The guy just seemed, I don't know, he just didn't seem like, basically he seemed like there was something on his mind and I just asked him, what's going on, mate? And I ended up was in there for half an hour chatting to this guy and my wife was outside and she thought this guy was like a guy who I'd known for a long time and I walked out and she said, who was that? I said, I don't know, I just met him. I said, but he had a lot of things that he wanted to get off his chest and since then, like I said, I've walked past and we've acknowledged each other. He doesn't work there anymore, but... I never even learned his name, but we just, we'd always just nod each other and say good day. That's a terrific story, mm. mate. Um, so take us forward in time. Um, so three and a half years in rehabilitation and, mm-hmm. and in work cover and trying to get yourself right. And then you had your experience where you made an attempt mm-hmm. um, on suicide. Um, tell us what happened around that period of time for you. Yeah, that happened around probably 18 months, I think, into the recovery phase. Okay. And I can remember one day just getting up and just thinking, look, this is it. So my mum would go to work and I'd be home by myself just sitting there and I'd get, I'd walk my dog twice a day and I can remember just sitting there and I thought, no, I just, I just don't want to be here. And yeah, so I guess... I just decided that that was it and I didn't see any any possibility of things changing or things getting better and it it just it did come back to the doctor's opinions of me and things like that and it's so silly now because I can sort of see that and I, I don't let anyone's opinion become my reality ever now like I understand that people have got their opinions and they're different but for me I just I just don't do that and that's the biggest advice I give to people is just don't let people decide who you are or what your future is going to be and it's quite it's kind of hard to talk about this without sort of going into it in terms of what what actually happened but I can talk about the events that happened pretty soon after it where basically I did have that fortunate position where I came out of it and 
divine intervention or whatever you want to call it, my dog basically saved my life. She she must have known that something was going on and put her head in the right space and made the right noises where I was worried that something was going to happen to her and that basically prompted me to not go through with it and, yeah. So I guess the, the, the part that changed my whole direction from having this opportunity happen was I don't know if it was that day or if it was the day after or when it was but I turned on the TV and I was watching Fox and on came this thing called the Iron Man and it just it just grabbed me and I, I kept watching it and eventually I saw this guy finish the Iron Man in a wheelchair and he started to talk about basically stuff that happens in life and about how you can find strength and it's not really what happens to you, it's what you do with it. And it, it really resonated. It's basically, I felt like this guy was talking to me. I felt like he'd basically grabbed me through the TV and was just talking to me. And to me now, like it feels like it was in an instant that my whole attitude changed, my whole life changed, and I thought, I'm going to do an Ironman and... I'm going to prove all these people wrong. So here you are, 18 months into rehabilitation, a, a process that took many years. Um, you have recently made an attempt on your life. You're watching TV and all of a sudden you decide, I'm going to be an Iron Man. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. Okay. And that, that brought me a lot of hope. I don't remember exactly when I told someone, but I... I'm pretty sure it was my brother I told him and I said, I'm going to do an Ironman and he just shrugged it off. And I'm pretty sure that I was saying a lot of stupid stuff at that time that <laughs> just wouldn't have made any sense. But anyway, I can remember we went for a run one day, my brother and my good mate. And were, my you, brother, were you athletic prior to this? Like, no. Did you have any sense of elite you know, training or uh, you know, you'd run marathons or anything like no. that? In fact, the person I was beforehand, I'm not sure if I mentioned this to you before, but I'll cover it quickly. I was basically like the average jerk. Like I drank a lot. I like to fight people, which is just the most foreign thing from my body now, why anyone would hit anyone. And like it's why I sort of see the accident happening. It's the best thing that could have happened to me. And other people say that to me as well, that that happened. And So your personality changed? Somewhat. Sometimes people say that they can still see parts in me that were from before. And when I do things, but I don't know, I, it's hard to break people's judgment of what they see in you. And I often think it's because they may want me to be that person still, that they may sort of draw associations to things and go, oh yeah, that's, that's like you from before. And it's hard for me to say, like, what is a memory really? Like it's your own interpretation of something so yeah so you decide to um do a triathlon or an Ironman yeah um so. you think to yourself well in order for me to do that I'm gonna have to train so you go out and you start training what was that like to you know first get out there and do your like your first run or your, yeah. your first swim firstly just to give people an indication how 
How big is an Ironman? What was what was this goal that so you set yourself? Three point eight kilometer swim, one hundred and eighty k bike ride, and a forty two k run. Could you swim? No. Well, like that's no. probably the hardest thing, isn't it? Like, it is. Well, yeah. initially the hardest thing was running because I'd broken my hip. I had all this stuff built up around it. Yeah. And I don't remember, I think it was over the space of a few months. I had to basically run and it was pretty painful, but I had to break up all that was built around it. And I sort of imagine that analogy of like Forrest Gump when he breaks three mm. from those running, yeah, yeah. those cleat things and he's run, free. Run, Forrest, run. And it was kind of like what I was with that. And I can remember hopping on a bike for the first time and it was my brother's mountain bike and he had a speedo on there. And I, I remember hitting like 12 kilometers an hour and I freaked out. It was like so fast for me. And I think it might have been with my brain damaged stuff that my interpretations of the world, I couldn't pick up stuff and see it fast enough. And so rather than see it in real time, it was kind of making it blurred. And yeah, so eventually I sort of got there and I think it would have been maybe two years into it, maybe a bit longer, maybe two and a half years before I went for my first run. And I still wasn't really talking to people about doing this triathlon thing, but one thing that I've learned about myself is that once someone doubts me, that drives me. I can clearly remember my first triathlon I did was a 300-meter swim, a 13 ride, and a 3K run. It was at Bribey Island. I remember doing that, and when I finished it, I just thought I was the best person in the world. It was the biggest buzz. And as well, I imagine as it, it was a massive buzz for your family. Were they there with you? Yeah, like, there was. To see you do that, you, know, you talk about it so flippantly, but honestly, to see you now do that must have given them just the most amazing buzz themselves yeah there was a lot of people there that were watching and I think there were three of my mates that actually did it with me and I will just say I did beat them all (laughs) 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 which was cool I came down to the run but yeah I can remember when I finished that I was just blown away and I went home and I just jumped on looked for the next race and just entered that and I just did race after race after race after race and eventually I decided I was going to do an Olympic distance race which was a 1500 swim a 40 ride and a 10k run and I remember telling this guy at the gym and he said you're going to do it as a team and I went I'm going to do it myself and he just went oh good luck and that just drove me nuts and I mean I think he'd seen where I'd come from so I can imagine them their perspective going oh yeah this crazy guy with brain damage and he's going to go out and do a trifle and he's probably going to die doing it but it just I always think about that that time that guy said that to me and even when I'm like really hurting I'll always think back to times people have doubted me like even the doctors and things and that that motivates me and pumps me up and I'm like right look at what I'm doing yeah and it all happened really fast the whole Ironman process it was literally I did the first triathlon in October. The following October, I'd managed to qualify for the Australian long course triathlon team. And I was at the long course world championships in Canberra, competing over a four kilometer swim, 120 kilometer bike ride and a 30 kilometer run. And I'd bunged my knee up recently before that. And I managed to get through it, get through the run. I think I was ranked 18th in my age group in the world for long course. And along the process of that, I'd also managed to qualify for the Ironman in Port Macquarie in 2007. And I just, it 
like I still now I get goosebumps thinking about when I lined up there like the whole experience that day getting in the water it was just the calmest thing it just felt right and for me I'd sort of promised myself before I did that race I said if I get through this I'm going to go to uni and I'm going to give that a go and sitting in the water waiting for the cannon to go it was the calmest thing ever and I remember the cannon going off and I think maybe 1,400 people around starting swimming and I was just sitting there and it was just dead silent and I must have swum that whole swim with a smile on my face. <laughs> but yeah, eventually I, I ended up finishing. I think it took me 12 and a half hours but coming down the finish chute, I was just walking on air. Like it was just unbelievable. Yeah, it's an amazing story. After that you went to uni? Yeah. What did you study? Well, when I went to uni, I first started off studying business and I was going to become an accountant because my brother was an accountant and I realised that accounting wasn't my thing. Like, I hated numbers and obviously the whole learning thing was still a bit bit surreal. Like, it probably took me a year to learn how to actually learn, which is a weird thing to say, but if you've basically had your mind reset, you have things that you know how to do, but... It doesn't really make sense how you actually learnt them. And going to a place where your grades do matter and you have to learn, that it was really, really difficult. But I stumbled through a couple of degrees and eventually I ended up finding a way to health promotion that kind of aligned with my values and things that I'd built up over the, over the years in recovery. And that was around basically an underlying desire to help people and help people that are in marginalised places, people that have had hard luck put on them. And my big focus initially was going to places like Cambodia and things like that overseas and helping out over there. And I was so fortunate that through uni I managed to do a work placement in Fiji and help some people out there with some water issues and then go to Cambodia and be involved in some amazing work over there as well. And all the time, like, my biggest value, I think, is around appreciating things that I get and I always sort of stop and just think about how appreciative I am of being able to be in those places but then it swings around and I just think all this happened because I kind of got that chance to to keep living. You met your partner when? I met her in 2012 I think it was March 14 and we met and it's kind of a funny story when we first met my friend who had introduced me had been telling me during the day about a friend of hers who was English had just been divorced and had two kids and then I meet my beautiful wife who's Irish and I just think well my similar friend, accent my friend got the, the country <laughs> wrong and we sort of after we met there like nothing really happened and it wasn't until August but we'd sort of been contacting but on the 21st of August she'd contacted me the day before and said can we go for a bike ride together and I was training at the time for long the 70.3 world championships in Vegas and I basically sent her a message and said yeah you can come with me I'm leaving at 4am and I'm going up basically a mountain and we rode out to this place and it was a seven and a half kilometer climb up this hill she smiled the whole way and she'd only been on a bike for six months and it just... You knew you found your it one. It just blew me away. <laughs> and it was 
a couple of the next night actually it was random I had tickets to a Xavier Rudd concert and I rang her and said do you want to come to this concert and she was actually meant to be doing studying and she'd asked her friend she said he's just rang and asked me to go to this concert what do I do and she's like get ready and go so yeah she did that and we were kind of inseparable from that moment it just it all just felt so right and yeah she's just amazing well, I'm sure equally you're amazing to her in terms of um, of your journey. Um, it is an incredible story, mate. Really, it's uh, you know to to survive the accident is one thing, um, and to live a normal and healthy life, both physiologically and psychologically, is you know is just incredible in itself. To do what you've done um, is another layer again in terms of um, you know how incredible your story is. We often ask a couple of questions uh, just at the end of all our interviews. The, the first one is, given um, your suicide experience, what do you think society needs to change in terms of their thinking around suicide? For one, I, need, I think that people need to think that it's not someone being selfish. Like there really is a reason why you're going to be having those thoughts and... To know that you may not be able to... Like, if you're close to someone, you're not going to have the right words to say. And for me, coming from where I was, no one could have said the right thing to me to get out of that space, which is kind of a hard thing to say and put out there that there's nothing that you can say. But if you're sort of going through it... Like, I, I always use the word hope, and I know some people don't really like that word, but for me... Just knowing that there is hope, that brought me a lot of value and a lot of, a lot of optimism. And I think if it hadn't been the Ironman, it probably would have been something else that I would have attached it to. But just find something that you can grab onto and put your hope in that and just go all in on it. I think the other question that we ask is, um, is really about, you know, what, what's your core message to people? Is your core message about hope find something that you can live for and drive towards that uh, don't expect an outcome straight away but um, have a purpose and and you know find your way forward from that point onwards I'd say that kind of is my core message but also back to something I spoke about before like it's not normally a quick process to get to that sort of mindset it happens over years, it might happen over weeks or months, but it normally happens, there's normally a few catalysts along the way, which mm. might be getting bad bad news or having someone thinking poorly off you or someone picking on you. And just to know that someone's opinion doesn't have to be your reality and hang on to that because if you can, if you can really hang on to that and know that what someone thinks about you, it doesn't have to affect you. I know that it will and like the the biggest thing which I like to debunk is that whole sticks and stones may break my bones but names will never hurt me. That's a load of crap because we all know that words do hurt us but it's just have that strength to just right from the start just make a promise to yourself that whatever someone says about me I'll take it with a grain of salt. They can have their opinion but it's not going to determine my life and my outcome. That's probably the biggest thing and it's probably going to be hard to do but if you can attach that with some hope to something that 
you're working towards something, working towards getting better, then I think you can have a great future. I know you can. And that's my process that I did. And it may not work for everyone, but like I just said, take it with a grain of salt, apply it to what, what's happening and see what happens. Like It is possible to have a great life and it is possible to do all the things that deep down inside you're dreaming about and you're wanting to do that you may not want to admit that you've got there. But everyone has hopes. Like we're all so different, but we're all the same. We all wake up every day and we have, we wake up and we want to be happy and we want to, we want to achieve stuff and just believe that it can happen for you. And well, it's a, it's a, an inspiring message and thank you for that. It's your living testament to, um, you know, to, uh, to that message, um, having done it yourself. Your story's amazing, mate. I, I'm, I feel really privileged that I've had the opportunity to do this podcast with you and, I know that there's going to be a lot of people uh, around the world that are going to enjoy listening to this and take great encouragement from uh, what it is that you've done. Uh, So thank you for joining us today. Thank you for being so open and willing to share your story. It is inspirational um, and uh, we really appreciate you being part of our podcast today here on Roses Radio. Well, thanks for taking the time to catch up with me down here. Like Like I said, when I first joined the Lived Experience Group, I'd been searching for something to apply myself to and suicide prevention is such a massive cause and it's such a meaningful thing to be involved with and if I can help one person to see hope and see a purpose for themselves then that's great, like I'm pumped, like I'd rather help hundreds and hundreds of people but you've got to start somewhere. Yeah that's true, thank you Tyne and thank you for um, you know, rolling up your sleeves and wanting to make an impact and I'm sure that this story is going to uh, have a very positive and meaning of, meaningful impact on the lives of lots of people who listen to it Thank you In conclusion, we remember those we have lost to suicide and we acknowledge the suffering that suicide brings when it touches our lives. We need to provide for all people a future that inspires and empowers individuals and communities and is filled with hope and meaning. If you or someone that you know needs support, you should contact Lifeline, a phone and online crisis support network. The Suicide Callback Service which provides professional counselling for those who are affected by suicide. Men's Line Australia, or the Kids Helpline, which works with children and teenagers from age 5 to 25, offering phone, web and email counselling and information for parents. In the event that you might like to assist the work of Roses in the Ocean and their Voices of Insight Speakers Hub, through speaking engagements in the local community, then please make contact with Roses in the Ocean on www.rosesintheocean.com.au or 1300-411-461. Hey, thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to bringing you other inspiring stories from those with a suicide lived experience. Bye.